Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. I will never forget being in middle school and waiting in this like long line with my friends one morning outside of the nurse's office and approaching the nurse's office and her lifting up my, you know, back of my shirt and having me bend forward and touch my toes. Was this a thing when you were at school? Yeah, we did that too. And of course, you know, boys, we would like try to like throw the test off, right? By like contorting (laughs) ourselves a certain way and get in trouble for that. Right. So in California, where I grew up, there was previously universal school-based scoliosis screening. Um, But this has since been suspended, so kids these days are not going through that anymore. And in fact, there's really some controversy about whether screening for scoliosis is actually beneficial at all. So today we're going to discuss scoliosis, right? Yes. And how do you think we would define scoliosis? Well, it would be a, there's probably a specific definition, but it's a curve in the spine, like an abnormal curve in the spine, I guess, because spines are normally curved, right? Yes, they are normally curved in the, you know, front to back axis, Mm -hmm. where scoliosis is defined as an abnormal lateral curvature of the bones of the spine. And it's basically usually classified on what causes that curve to develop. So -hmm. we know up to 3% of the general population has a small spinal curvature, and most are never going to need orthopedic involvement or treatment of any kind. So let's talk about the different causes of scoliosis. So the most common type is adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, which makes up about 85% of scoliosis diagnoses. It's diagnosed at age 10 or older, and this is going to be the main focus of our conversation today. So idiopathic is the medical community's fancy word to say we just it just happens and we don't have an underlying explanation for it. So the children with idiopathic scoliosis have this as an isolated finding and usually have no other associated medical problems. So by definition, those with adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, they should have no neurologic symptoms like weakness or things like that. Right. So no weakness, no numbness or tingling, no significant back pain, bowel or bladder changes. Those would be concerning symptoms. The other less common types of scoliosis are congenital scoliosis, meaning you're born with it. Scoliosis that's associated with neuromuscular or genetic conditions. So thinking about things like cerebral palsy, Marfan syndrome, less commonly things like neurofibromatosis, or those that are due to an anatomic defect in the spine. We should also note that there's a subset of kids between the ages of 10 and 12, so still kind of meet that criteria for adolescent scoliosis, who have larger curves. And those kids we generally get an MRI on because as many of 20% of those kids may have underlying spinal cord problems. So again, then that would make it not idiopathic, right? Mm-hmm. And girls and boys are affected equally, but the risk of the curve getting worse over time is 10 times higher in girls. A frequent response from parents when I point out their teen scoliosis is that like, oh, this was definitely caused because their backpacks are so heavy or they're always like they have the worst posture and they're always sitting in bed doing their homework. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there any merit to those concerns from parents? 
Absolutely not. While we don't know what exactly causes scoliosis, parents can rest easy. It's not related to putting too much stress on the spine or kids slouching at the dinner table. It does seem to run in families, but the genetics is not really well understood. So if one child has scoliosis, there's a 7% chance their sibling will have it as well. And that percentage goes up if the parents were affected. You mentioned before that screening for scoliosis is controversial. Why is that? What's wrong with screening? Yeah, well, in 2017, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force stated in their recommendation that the current evidence was insufficient and that the balance of benefits and harms of screening for adolescent idiopathic scoliosis could not be determined. So they just, like, didn't really make a stance on it, saying it wasn't clear if one was better than the other. However, many other organizations, including the Scoliosis Research Society, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, the Pediatric Orthopedic Society, and the American Academy of Pediatrics, believe there are still significant benefits to screening for spinal deformities because there's good intervention to help it from progressing. So they do recommend that it's performed at the child's primary care office for girls at both age 10 and 12, and for boys just one time between the ages of 13 and 14. So most children are diagnosed in their primary care doctor's office, but many times parents bring it up noticing that one shoulder appears higher, or they might notice that there's asymmetry during the summer when the kids are swimming in the pool. And during their physical examination, you know, or if a concern is brought up, um, these are other times that, that you can find out that a child might have um, scoliosis. Um, so the physician asks the child to stand with their feet together and then bend forward to touch their toes. And this is called the Adams Forward Bend Test. So it's not that fancy. <laughs> I'm guessing there was an Adams orthopedic surgeon or something somewhere. Oh, yeah, that this likely was named Dr. After. Adams, right? <laughs> When I do this in my office, I'm looking for any asymmetries of the back. Does one side seem to stick up a little bit more than the other? Do I see any visible curvatures of the spine? And sometimes we use this tool called a scoliometer to help determine how significant that asymmetry is. Dr. Dean, you probably had like a real scoliometer in your residency. I didn't have my own, but they we had them in the clinic. Yeah, and then and when I was dur during my training, general pediatric training. Yeah, now they're kind of like ancient, you know, relics of the pediatric, general pediatric office. Although, of course, people use them. I have a app on my phone that um, serves a similar purpose and use that if I'm like kind of hedging, like, is this a clinically significant curve? If an asymmetry is noticed, then an x-ray of the spine will be ordered. And this helps to determine the size of the spinal curvature. Right. But with these type of things, we don't just want to be ordering an x-ray willy-nilly on any kid whose back looks a little bit funny because, of course, we know there's radiation in x-rays. And so that's why the scoliometer can be helpful because it gives us an exact number when it's likely to be a clinically significant curve. Um, so that would be greater than or equal to 7 in children with a BMI less than 85th percentile or greater than or equal to five in kids that have a higher BMI because sometimes they have a little bit extra tissue. It can be more difficult to see the spine below that. And so if it's greater than these numbers, then we would get an x-ray. Mm -hmm. So the x-rays obtained are standing full length front to back x-ray. And they initially also look at a side view also. 
Right. And that's initially to confirm to make sure there's none of those other anatomic reasons for the scoliosis, like a a different shape in the bone of the spine. Mm -hmm. Your doctor will likely mention how many degrees of curvature the scoliosis is. And this is what's referred to as the Cobb angle. Again, probably named for some radiologists. Mm -hmm. I wonder if he invented the Cobb salad as well. (laughs) That would be pretty versatile. (laughs) (laughs) Doubtful. The higher the Cobb angle, the more severe the curve. Um, And so most people will define scoliosis as having a curve of 10 degrees or more. Less than that would just be normal spinal asymmetry. Scoliotic curves are described by the location that the vertebra is the furthest out of, of the curve, the apex. So that may be in the thoracic region or the thoracolumbar or the lumbar spine. Um, And so this um, also tells you the direction the curve is pointing. Is it to the left? That would be levoscoliosis or to the right, dextroscoliosis. The most common curve we see in adolescent idiopathic scoliosis is a right, pointing right thoracic curve, left lumbar double curve. So it kind of like has both of those components. So you may hear your doctor say something like you have a thoracic dextroscoliosis with a curve of 22 degrees. And the x-ray will also comment on something called the Risser stage. And this is a number from 0 to 5 that looks at the ossification of one of the hip bones. This shows how much growth potential an adolescent has left. And the reason this is so important is because the more growth a child has left, the more likely their scoliotic curve is to continue to progress. And even more accurate of the growth potential is a bone age x-ray of the wrist. So many orthopedic surgeons will order this when they're deciding on the treatment or the optimal time for treatment. Now, you mentioned before that most cases of scoliosis do not require treatment or referral. So how do you decide when that is needed? So there are a few different factors I usually consider when I'm trying to decide when to refer, and that is how significant the curve is and how likely it is to progress. And how do you know how likely it is to progress? Well, like we just mentioned, the more growth you have left, the more likely your curve is to worsen. So the risk of a curve progressing is highest during the adolescent growth spurt. This is what we call like peak height velocity or like when the kid's growing the most. In girls, this occurs about six months before they're going to get their first period. And the risk of the curve getting worse for girls after they've had their period is much lower and even lower still if they're two years beyond their period. Mm -hmm. And then what about for boys? Boys, of course, like with all things, are a little bit more challenging because they don't have like an easy marker like the menstrual cycle to track. Um, And in the first place, like we mentioned at the beginning, their scoliosis is much less likely to progress in the first place. So males are considered skeletally mature when they need to shave their face daily. But I'm going to give a shout out here to my brother-in-law who is like 35 and I don't think he needs to shave his face daily. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I I think he's skeletally mature at this point. Um, I don't know. It's sort of hard. And of course there's a caveat to this, like with everything, if the curve is large enough, meaning it's 40 degrees or more, then some will continue to progress even after skeletal maturity. And so there's a useful tool for parents who may have questions about their own child and their likelihood of progressing that the University of Iowa puts out to help calculate risk of progression. And we have a link to that on our website. Okay, so at what degree of curvature would would you consider referring? 
Yeah, so I'll usually monitor it into my office until it gets to 20 degrees, and then I refer to orthopedic surgeons are usually the people that will take care of scoliosis. But again, if I have a 16-year-old female that has a 20-degree curve and she got her period at 13, so she's three years after her period, her looks like her height is plateauing, she's got a riser stage of five, then I'll figure she's done growing. It's unlikely that her curve is going to progress And so that's why we really have to consider it on a case-by-case basis. Are there symptoms of scoliosis besides the appearance of the curve alone? Are people with scoliosis more likely to to experience back pain as they get older or have any kind of other complications? Yeah, it's a great question. And while some patients with scoliosis do complain of back pain, it doesn't seem to be higher than the general population, right? A lot of people actually complain of back pain. And that is until we get to a curve of about 30 degrees, um, and then they can have some effects of their scoliosis. We know that scoliosis does not seem to make people more prone to osteoporosis as they get older, and it doesn't affect a woman's ability to have a baby or have a vaginal delivery at some point in her life if that's what she wants. So let's talk about treatment options for scoliosis. So there's bracing, there's surgery, What about um, complementary techniques like um, chiropractic work or physical therapy? Have these been demonstrated to really prevent progression of scoliosis? Unfortunately, the studies thus far looking at the benefits of physical therapy or chiropractic manipulation have not shown any significant benefit, although, of course, this is an area of ongoing research because that would be great. The primary goal of managing scoliosis non-operatively is to prevent the curve from progressing to usually 50 degrees is the most commonly accepted threshold for recommending surgery. So in some cases, bracing may be helpful to limit progression of the curve, and the most common brace is called a TLSO, which stands for thoracolumbosacral orthosis. So the general indications for bracing are for individuals with scoliotic curves of between 30 and 50 degrees with substantial growth remaining. The brace can definitely be helpful, but unfortunately requires children to wear them for most of the day for it to be effective at stopping progression, which of course is a limitation in teenagers. Mm -hmm. Studies have shown that wearing your brace less than 12 hours per day is pretty much the same as not having a brace at all. So a child needs to wear it for a minimum of 13 hours and more optimally at least 18 hours per day. So these braces are much lower profile than the ones in the olden days. So when I was in school, there were a couple kids who had these braces, but they were like these huge contraptions that they were wearing outside of their clothes. And then they had the um, they had had part that like stuck up under their chin to hold their chin up. They were they they were really awkward looking, oh. and it really it really made these kids stand out. It's, it was a stigma to ha- to be wearing these braces. Thankfully, these are so much better these days. They can be worn under clothing. Of course, as a teenager, anything that makes you feel different is really hard, and that's why really only about fifty percent of patients prescribed these braces actually wear them as they should. The brace is usually worn until skeletal maturity is reached, and if a brace is unsuccessful or the curve progresses past 50 degrees, then usually surgery will be recommended. And the goal of surgery is not to straighten the spine per se, but to instead prevent further progression to the point where it could affect the heart or the lung function, Um, and thankfully this amount of curvature is quite rare. 
The most commonly performed surgery in these cases is an instrumented posterior spinal fusion where rigid rods are attached to the spine with screws, or a newer surgery called vertebral body tethering. Right. This vertebral body tethering can be used usually for kids between 10 and 12 years old, and they must have two years of growth or more left. In this procedure, metal anchors are attached to the vertebrae on the side of the spine that's curving outwards, and a tether is connected to these and placed under tension. So over time, the thought of is as the child grows, the growth will slow on that area of the curved spine and allowing the other side of the spine to catch up to hopefully straighten it out uh, or at least not let the curve progress. So this is a big procedure, these, these operations. So there, um, there's a significant recovery, but kids do have full function afterwards and they're able to even play sports, um, usually not initially contact sports, but you know, they, they can do sports and they live normal lives and you know, have children and whatever, but it is, it is a big surgery to have. That wraps up today's podcast on adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. We hope we demystified this really common orthopedic condition in kids. And we would like to thank Dr. Rolando Roberto, a pediatric spine surgeon at UC Davis Children's Hospital, for reviewing today's episode, although Dr. Dean and I take full responsibility for any errors or misinformation. Let's summarize the main topics. So scoliosis is defined as a lateral curvature of the spine of 10 degrees or more. It's very, very common. It affects up to 3% of the population, and adolescent idiopathic scoliosis makes up 85% of those. Scoliosis will usually be diagnosed in the office when an asymmetry of the spine is noticed, and then oftentimes an x-ray is performed, and that's what's diagnostic. Depending on the size of the curve, as well as your stage of pubertal development, your doctor will either monitor it in the office or refer to orthopedics for consideration of bracing or surgery. And, of course, that reminds me of a scoliosis joke. Uh Uh-oh. But you know what? I thought of it, and it's just completely out of line. (laughs) You don't have scoliosis, do you? Not as far as I know, no. I know. I I think... At one point, they commented that there was like a slight asymmetry, um, but I never had to do anything about it, which I think is the most common thing for people to to have happen to them. Yeah, yeah. I think that it is common not to be like exactly symmetric. Yeah. And it's good that we're kind of being a little bit more judicious about when we get x-rays if we're not going to do anything about it. So I know, at least in my practice recently, I really try to think about like... Is this really needed? Is this going to change management at all? And only get them for those kids that I feel feel like it will. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. Children's Hospital.